Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse and yet nothing seems to really be helping? Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery. And I'd love to share with you about these phases what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to www.rachelgrantcoaching.com checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now, on to our show. Welcome everyone to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and am the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now, folks, we are in for a super duper treat today. <laughs> I love all of my guests, but I particularly love the dude that's coming on today to talk with us, uh, David Pittman, 
who um, is running a fabulous organization called Together We Heal, and he is going to be here today to talk with us about sexual abuse within faith communities. Now, David and I met many years ago. I've lost track of when it actually was, but he has become just a dear colleague and brother in healing and world changer, someone who I look to to stay up to date on how things are moving in the world. And uh, I just adore him and appreciate him. And I know you're going to really enjoy hearing his story and learning from him today. So back in 2006 is when David really took his first step in a long and painful journey back from this abyss of addiction and self-destruction. He promised his father as he was dying that he would get clean. And he did. And David and I have actually talked before about the journey of healing from addiction and this co-occurrence between abuse and addiction. So you can find um, his previous interviews on my YouTube channel. So you can go and check that out. The thing of it is, is as he was doing that work of getting sober, he began to confront the sexual abuse that his addiction had obscured. And this was abuse that was perpetrated by a church youth minister when David was 12 to 15. So for 25 years, David's in this place, right, of keeping the abuse secret and losing himself and um, had some very big struggles, which I'll let him tell you more about in our conversation today. But like so many of us, there, there comes this moment, there's a catalyst, there's something that shifts or change for, changes for us where we say, all right, enough is enough, and we have to take this on. And so this became his process, and that was this first step for him in rebuilding his life through 12-step meetings and a really deep determination, you know, to, to move forward. And now today, David and his wonderful wife, Linda, who I love. Hi, Linda, if you're listening, um, <laughs> helps fellow survivors through the Together We Heal um, a nonprofit that creates, um, that was actually created to provide guidance for survivors and their families and to educate communities across the U.S. David does a lot of public speaking to spread the message. And most recently, he's become a member of the Child Safeguarding Certification Team with GRACE, which is an organization that trains churches on how to better protect children, better identify predatory behavior, and properly respond to those who have been harmed. So in other words, we're talking with a powerhouse today. So tune in, listen, pay attention, don't miss a word. David, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much, Rachel. I don't, I, I don't even know how we follow up with that. We might as well just quit right there. <laughs> done. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Podcast complete. <laughs> over, right? Oh, my goodness. Well, no way, because I really want to dig in with you today. And um, I want to certainly spend some time today exploring this conversation about how we um, face trauma when it has occurred within a faith community and the work that you're doing to raise the awareness and to build bridges between trauma survivors and their faith communities so they can stop being re-traumatized in right. those spaces. Before we get into that, though, um, I'd love to hear, you know, I shared little snippets of your story. Um, maybe you can tell our listeners just a little bit more about you and, and what your journey has been like and how you've arrived to where you are today. Well, and I'll kind of pick up where you had um, where you had uh, alluded to was um, because of the sexual abuse, I <clears throat> I didn't have any 
I didn't have proper coping mechanisms in, in place. Um, because in, in, in 1982, 83, especially in, uh, or at least in the Southern Baptist South, we didn't even, we didn't talk about sex, much less sexual abuse. Right. So the only way I thought I could deal with it was to internalize it. And the result of that was me, I ended up self-medicating, you know, and alcohol just wasn't enough. So I was just ingesting as many narcotics as I could to numb myself from the pain. Mm. Um, and that, you know, uh, as I, one of my bristlecone brothers quoted it perfectly. He said, uh, it, it, you were at times destitute, at times incarcerated. And, and, and both of those things occurred in multiple occasions because of this, of, of that self-destructive path. Um, and I didn't, while I wasn't consciously trying to kill myself, um, having overdosed three times, it was evident that I didn't care whether I lived or died. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, um, I did hit one of those rock bottoms where I realized, oh, no, I, I don't want to die. I don't want to continue with this. And um, I had an, an amazing therapist, someone just like you, who was willing to to help me and, and spend time with me and 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 help me answer the, the, the ask the tough questions and then come to those, those realizations and those answers and begin that healing journey. Mm. Uh, and that was, that was how I was able to get to where I'm at today. Yeah. Thank you, David. So one of the things that we've always connected around is this journey of going from that place of hurt and feeling broken and um, all of the struggles that come with trauma and then feeling really ignited to take that and transform it into something that makes a change in the world. Right. And so I do that through my work of, you know, the Beyond Surviving program. And you're doing that through the work of Together We Heal, which has evolved over the years. You know, it's been around for so many years now and it's had many forms. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your advocacy work through Together We Heal and what that organization is means to you these days? Yeah, we, we started off where our, our focus was to um, was to help survivors who, who did, had little to no resources mm -hmm. find counselors and or, or therapists, and we did that for uh, for a number of years, as you well know. We worked together helping connect survivors. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we started running into roadblocks um, one by one. So a lot of state legislators, um, at the behest, unfortunately, of some deep-pocketed lobbyists backed by traditional brick and mortar psychiatrists, um, created and began passing laws. And, and these laws prevented most of our ability to help connect survivors, you know, where someone could go from state to state or help someone out of state over the phone or, or via, uh, via video. Mm -hmm. Ironically, now you see the very things that we were trying to do. I know. <laughs> it's come into play um, now. Yeah. Right. So, um, but so, so we, we had to shift because yeah. we, we weren't going to stop the work that we were doing. Um, so what we now do, most of the work with Together We Heal, and now let me back up. We still do when we can, wherever we can help survivors connect to counselors or therapists or coaches in, you know, we don't ever say someone just, you know, sorry, we don't do that anymore. We still try to help when we when and where we can in the States that allow it. Yeah. That being said, most of it is, is what, what you talked about just earlier, educating parents, churches, 
the public at large, you know, I, we, I, we do public speaking all across the country, raising awareness about childhood sexual abuse, the, the challenges that victims face. Um, we expose predators. When we, when we have credible accusations, we name them. We do, you know, uh, press conferences. Um, because they need to, we, we draw that media attention so they cannot, they can't hide in plain sight behind those church walls and behind those, those, those robes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then recently we, we partnered with Grace. Yes. So in some ways this pivot has been circumstantial that the work that you're wanting to do is hitting up against these roadblocks, which are exactly right. We're starting to see more and more of video therapy, video counseling becoming available. There are still some limitations as far as, you know, having to be with someone who's in your state, but it's growing and that's fantastic. That's actually one of the reasons back in 2007 when I started this work and when I ended up going into doing my master's, I became a coach instead of a therapist. Right. Because I was very aware that there were people who are in rural areas or just because of time or money or all sorts of different reasons are not going to be able to access therapy, but can take advantage of coaching right. where we can talk by phone or by video. So I love that, you know, things have continued to evolve in the work that you're doing. And for those of you listening, yes, David is a great connector. He is so good at finding resources. And so if you're listening and you are looking for support and resources, definitely feel free to reach out. And um, very particularly, your attention is... has got some great, has got a big list. Even if you don't even look with me directly, you can, if you're, some people are a little... They don't want to just, you know, they don't want yeah. to call and talk, and, and I totally get that. At least go to that resource page and look and see on there. Got it. Yeah, definitely, <clears throat> definitely. And so your attention and most of your work is now in this realm of educating parents and, and people um, about trauma and particularly in the faith communities. Um, beyond just the circumstances of hitting those roadblocks, what else was there for you? What about your own experience um, of experiencing trauma in within a faith community has led you down this particular path? Why is this so important to you? Well, it, the, and, and you and I have had this conversation before too, um, privately, <laughs> about how I really didn't start any of this with any altruistic motives. <laughs> what? It, yeah, I know. Hard to believe. There, there was no, you know, grand, grand design of intent behind it. I was just, I was, I was hurting so badly. I didn't know where to go or what to do, and, and my, and my faith was wasn't just shaken; it was lost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, we, we were at church all day Sunday. Um, Monday was a Bible study, Tuesday was visitation, Wednesday night was youth choir, Thursday was fellowship of Christian athletes. So mm-hmm. basically every day of the week we yeah, were just involved in the church. It was, it was part of and our life and my life. And so to have the people or the person who was key in that betray me the way that they did and as I later found out, many other little boys, both before, during, and after that church, mm-hmm. um, it, it, like I said, it, I, I lost that faith. Um, and, and I hated God for so long. Um, didn't, as I told you, I didn't darken the door of a church for, with the exception of a funeral or a wedding. Yeah. Um, 
And, but as I began to heal, I realized with regard to my faith, it wasn't God that did this to me. This was a human being. And I'll use that term loosely because he's neither a man nor much of a human being, but, but it was a person that did this. There was a person that committed this crime. This wasn't my fault. This wasn't God's fault. It actually, to my faith, I believe it broke God's heart. And as I started to heal and understand that, my heart softened and uh, my faith was renewed that, that particularly once we, I started working with grace and, and hearing from churches who wanted to do the right thing, who wanted to better help protect their children, then I, in, in spite of everything that you see on the media today, which is all true, you know, churches, you know, you, you can't pick up a TV or turn on, you know, uh, if you're of a certain age, pick up a newspaper. I know. <laughs> um, you can turn on your, your browser on your phone or your laptop and see about an, yeah. another new case or cases of sexual abuse. Yeah. And, and so um, I get that. It, it, but I also do, I have faith and I have a belief that we can still help protect children in the churches that want to do that. Mm. And, that's, and that's, that's what led me to that path. Yeah, thank you, David. One of the things that I'm really connecting to in your story is this journey of having a community. You know, church is not just about, you know, learning about the Bible and learning verses. I mean, it really is a community. It's a space that you go to for family and for fun and for connection and resources. And it's a a way of knowing oneself, its identity in so many ways. And when the person who is supposed to be the steward of our soul, of our spirit, is an abuser, I mean, you know, this adds in layers and layers of complexity to healing. And uh, healing is difficult enough. And then if you have this piece as a part of your journey. I haven't often shared this story, but my grandfather, who was my abuser, uh, was a devoted Jehovah's Witness. And very similarly, up until the age of five, we were we went to church all the time. I was there in the pews next to my mom. And of course, he had been in the church his entire life. And when my mother discovered that my grandfather was abusing me, she and my father immediately got him out of our home. But she also, um, even though she was not so much going to the Jehovah's Witness Church anymore at that point, she still used it as a resource. And so she went to the deacons or whatever they're called. I don't even know what they're called, <laughs> whoever they are, and, um, and had a conversation with them and nothing was done. There was nothing. And it was almost like, well, he's an older guy, so whatever, you know, probably dies. I mean, that's how it felt to me. Happened so long ago. Yeah, right. I mean, this was like within, you know, a month of them finding out they had this conversation. But I think they just wrote it off. Um, And I, I remember that really shaking me because I thought, well, if this person is is so strong in his faith and he has been so dedicated to God all of these years, um, how is it that he can then do something like this? And, you know, for a 10-year-old, 
I mean, that like your brain is like, <laughs> like I cannot make sense of any of this. And oh, similarly, I was pissed off at God. I remember standing out in the middle. I grew up in the country in Oklahoma. I remember standing out in the middle of the woods one day and just screaming at the top of my lungs and like cursing at God and being like, what the fuck? And how could you let this happen? And, you know, for me, this led to almost rather than turning my back on faith, it's like I had to figure it all out. And so I went to every church you could imagine, David. I was with the Pentecostals, like falling out. I was with the Baptists, like, woo, you know, and singing, I, you know, Christian science, everything. It's like I wanted to figure it out and understand God so that I could understand why this had happened to me and how this had all come about. And my journey with faith in God has been a very wiggly road, right? And, you know, I went through a whole phase where I just said to hell with it all. And, you know, and I don't believe in any of it. And today I'm more probably in the camp of agnostic, like who knows, right? <laughs> but I believe there's so much amazing things happening in the universe. But I just share that with you all who are listening to, to follow on from David's story about faith because it's, it's complicated. And um, faith for so, so many people is such an anchor in their healing. It's a cornerstone. It's what helps them get through and stay hopeful. And when we have churches that do not understand and are not addressing this problem and are not supporting um, their uh, parishioners or members uh, who have experienced trauma, man, we're missing the boat in so many ways. Okay. And so... I love this work that you're doing at Grace. I think it's so critical and so important. Can you tell us a little bit more about Grace and, and that work that you're doing? Yeah, we, um, um, we well, Grace uh, actually stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. That's okay. why they just called it Grace. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, the, there, there's actually two parts of it. They, um, the, the, the two parts of the mission, one is to investigate um, institutional abuse within Christian uh, organizations, whether it's churches, universities, schools, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the other part of that is what, what we talked about, where we, we, we go and we specifically do on-site trainings, teaching them how to better protect their children, how to identify predatory behavior, and properly respond to those mm -hmm. that have been harmed. Um, the, the, the person that, that formed, that started Grace is a man by the name of Boz Chavitchin. He, uh, he was a state attorney prosecutor in Florida. And in case after case of sexual abuse, where the perp was a pastor or a youth minister or involved in the church in some way, he began to see a very disturbing pattern. The parishioners of the church, the leadership would almost always be there in court in support of the offender. Rarely, if ever, would the, they be there right. for the victim. They would be pleading at the, the, for the court to show mercy on, on the person who had committed this heinous crime. And um, that's, that's really the reason why my boss said, you know, look, we've, we've got to begin a process where churches can understand the, the myths that they're being taught the inaccuracies, the yeah. basically yeah. all of the all of the wrong that's that's leading them to protect these offenders and leave the victims behind. Mm -hmm. um, so we we do two things: we do um, a, a leadership training 
where we've specifically worked with the pastors and the ministers and Sunday school teachers and all that. And then the second one is a church-wide training. And both of those trainings consist of four one-hour sessions. So it's half a day where we are you know, going through a lot of material with them. Wow. And, you know, what's beautiful about this is this could not have existed, you know, 20 years ago. So I'm in one way, I'm like super, super excited because it is a sign of the times that things are changing. The fact that this program can even exist and people are interested in it. And so this is, you know, spurs on a little bit of hope in me that we are um, heading more and more towards awareness, be people being trauma informed. I know there's still a lot of work to do and plenty of faith communities that are still really stuck um, in very archaic ways of thinking about women and gender and all sorts of things and trauma and sex and you know, all of the above. We won't go there. That would be a two hour show. But um, for these communities that are woke, if you will, <laughs> and are willing you know to partake in this training I'm I'm just so thrilled that you and um, the folks at Grace are out there doing this can you share with us I know you can't go into like all of the tenants and all of the curriculum but maybe you could give us just a little sneak peek of some of the things when you talk about um, training leaders what are those key things that you want leaders to know I think this is good for our audience even for people who are not um, maybe a leader in a church but just leaders in general or out there, you know, working with people. If you're hanging out with people, you're hanging out with people who've experienced trauma. We know that, given the statistics. So what are some things that leaders can um, really pay attention to that would help them in this arena? All right, so I'll give you a kind of a, 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 a little a, a, a thumbnail sketch of the things that we, we go over. Um, the, the broad brush of this is to build a safe culture within a church. Um, because right now, you know, what, what should be the safest of communities is only safe for the predators. Um, and the only way that we can help a church build that safe culture is to have adults that are educated and empowered to protect wow. the children. Yeah. So in, we, we give, um, we, we, it, is, it is both theologically and scripturally founded in, in for this child protection and we teach we show them you know scripture by scripture on this we teach them a best practices for prevention for response um, and at the church-wide we do an, a, a complete overview and introduction to child sexual abuse within the church because unfortunately and the, 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 the result is people you know supporting a, a perpetrator most people within faith communities just don't know the basics about how, how childhood sexual abuse affects. We teach them the impact that it has on the life of a child and, and the resulting adult. We help them truly understand how offenders operate. And then we show them ways to help minimize opportunities for that abuse. In addition to that, we, make, we, we provide material specific both for children's ministries and for youth ministries. Mm. We help them develop a, a, an actual written child safeguarding policy for implementation nice. that, that we work with each church because every church is going to have a little different needs here and there, but we still have to maintain must-haves, you know, mm -hmm. things that are non-negotiable. Right. Do a facility walkthrough. Um, I've done dozens of them where 
I just as, a, as an example, I went in. I, I asked the, the there was about 11 people in the leadership, and I and I asked them to come into the room, and 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 walk to me until they could find me, and I and I just began talk because I had found this cubby hole that led to like a back room, so I I was just talking and talking and talking. Mm-hmm. And they, I let them walk around in the room for two or three minutes before they finally gave up. Mm. And Rachel, these are people who had been members of this church for over 20, 30 years. Right. And I showed them, I, I said, this know. is what There's we're talking about. This, these, right. And so we do these facility walkthroughs so we can help them understand there are places right. that, while, yes, someone can be abused in plain sight, they can also, they also have these hidden places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, and then we do follow-ups every year thereafter because times change, personnel are going to change, um, and 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 so that's kind of the the crux of, mm. of what we do. <laughs> I can feel, I'm feeling myself getting teary-eyed, David, <laughs> because it's just so profound the um, stand that you are taking for children to be safe. And these communities where the assumption is so quick that everything is good here, right. you know, and it, and it, we would expect it to be in a space where God and love and spirituality is. But the truth of the matter is that that's not the case. And you working on all of those different levels to create these communities and to help people become aware of what they can do in their communities to keep the children safe and honestly, hopefully put me out of business one day, <laughs> right? Yeah. Cause there'll be nobody needing, you know, because this will be preemptive, preventative, um, or if not prevented, immediately responded to in such a powerful way that the child does not end up re-traumatized by the lack of support um, and resources that are made available to him or her. So we've been talking a lot about how you're going into faith-based communities and helping the people there understand trauma, understand how to respond to trauma, and how to support um, and advocate for victims of abuse. Would you say that this work also applies to people who aren't spiritual or religious? Absolutely. Um, a study that I just I just came across, and it, it was just done a couple, three years ago, said that 80% of the people in the United States expressed a devout belief in God. Um, and, and many, if not most of those, attend some type of corporate worship. They're active in a church, a synagogue, a temple, whatever. So even if you aren't religious, what that number means is that most or many of, the, of your family members are religious, which means you have children in your family that are going to be in an environment that they need protection. They need a safeguarding policy. They need safeguarding period. And even if you aren't religious for your family members that are and the children that are in that, in, in that environment, you need to be their advocate. You need to be their voice. Yeah, definitely. I love that. So I want to go back to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is the complexity of trauma on its own, but then the complexity of trauma when it occurs within a faith community in this circumstance where the person who is abusing you is a representative um, or a member of your representative of God, faith, et cetera, or a member of your faith community. 
what, could you talk with us a little bit about what survivors who have experienced, we'll call it spiritual abuse, you know, in this space, um, what are they dealing with that, you know, maybe survivors who were not abused in these sorts of situations or circumstances um, are dealing with? What's distinct or different? Well, any, and, and you and I, again, we've talked about this, and any survivor that's listening out there, they'll, they can tell you how, how deeply they are affected by that abuse. Relatives who offend that were supposed to be the very ones to keep you safe, like your grandfather. Yeah. Um, teachers, coaches, um, people that betray that special confidence that's supposed to be there. So on top of those same struggles, um, for children that are victimized by members of the clergy, the struggle, there's no other way to say it, the struggle is often tied to hell and eternal damnation. Yeah. You know, you are, you're, you have, have priests and pastors and clergy preaching one thing about sexual impropriety and the consequence of that. So yeah. then, what is, then what is a child are you to think other than, well, I guess I'm going to hell. Or in many cases, these perpetrators that are clergy will use God against the children. They'll say, this is God's will. This is what God wants you to do or, or, or what God told me to do. Um, and as we talked a little bit about the, the Houston Chronicle that just did the three-part story of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church, my story was just one of 700 verified cases. Um, and so you, you hear from all of the, all, I mean, I say this over and over again, my story is not unique. I have variables as we all do, but our stories are all the same. And, and when you, again, when you, when you tie to that, the spiritual aspect of feeling that you are going to be condemned, mm. you've now lived through hell and believe that it's just a precursor of things to come. Wow. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I mean, that's so heavy. What a heavy burden. Yeah. To bear. And, and to put on a child. And to put that on the child. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's um, it's one of the hardest things to wrap our heads around when the adults in our lives, regardless of station, choose to harm a child. And this is such a complex, you know, behavior. But when it is then um, sheltered, it is protected. Uh, it's rationalized. Yeah, you know, this is such a, a hateful, hurtful thing to do. And for those children and those people who are listening who have experienced abuse within the space of um, a faith community, there's a lot of compassion that we need to have, I think, for what that journey is actually like to come from that place of feeling condemned. Um, and feeling like everything happening to you is because of God. I mean, my gosh, right? And so when you, um, can you say a little bit about how you unpack that for yourself? What were some of the things that helped you make sense of that? Well, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, I, I held, because it was, you know, 
a person from the church. I held the church responsible. I held God responsible, hated the church, hated God. <clears throat> but as I, as I came to an understanding of, of who was actually responsible, that's, that's what, I, what I found most helpful for me. Who was the perpetrator of the crime? Because for so long, I, you know, many of us do this. We blame ourselves. We think it's our fault. Um, and, and once we realize that who is the perpetrator or in some survivors' cases, perpetrators, those are the individuals that are responsible for this crime. They're the ones at fault. They're the ones to blame. They're the ones to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And once I really not just got it with my head, but felt it in my heart, that's when I could begin to heal and, and my faith could be renewed. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it wasn't until I, un, that, I, that I really grasped that, that, that anything could, be, could move forward. Yeah, you know, this is um, what this brings to mind is something that I talk about with my clients often, which is the one of the biggest traps of trauma is the way that it causes us to globalize the experience. So, for example, the person who harmed me was a minister or a person of faith. Therefore, all people of faith are bad or dangerous or no good. It was a man who abused me. Therefore, all men are dangerous. It was a woman who abused me, all women. It was a teacher who abused me. Now I'm scared when I'm around teachers, right? We, we collapse the role with the abuse when it's not the role. It's not the circumstance. It's the individual. So I love, love, love what you're saying there, which is a big step towards healing and um, being able to reclaim spaces, particularly a space like faith-based, you know, like a church or community, these sorts of things, is by recognizing that this is an individual and an individual's choices and they are not representative of the whole. Yeah. We take our power back. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I love that. So what's on the horizon for you? What do you have coming up that you want to tell people about? Um, well, you know what? I, 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 want to, I, want to ask, I want to ask a few questions of your viewers and listeners. Yes, do it. So <clears throat> I want them to ask themselves these questions and then ask of their faith community. Does their church or faith community, whatever, wherever they at- attend or are a part of, do they have a written policy on child safeguarding? Is that policy, if they do, is it available for all to see? And here's a simple one. Have they actually read it? Mm. Um, has, their, has their church leadership had any professional training on childhood sexual abuse and how to properly respond? And does your church, temple, synagogue, do they handle cases internally or do they immediately report to law enforcement? Those are some very key questions to ask yourself um, and to ask of the, the community of which you're a part. Yeah. And, and there's, there's two, um, there's, of course, with, with regard to the Christian faith, we have grace. But I want to mention another one. It's an organization called Sacred Spaces. They specifically work, work with the Jewish community. And they are... Just like grace, you know, it's, it's the same thing. We have actually, we have a lot of, of inter-organizational cooperation with them. Thank and they're doing the same thing in the Jewish community. Again, it's called Sacred Spaces. All you have to do is just Google their name. Um, so I just wanted to, to put that out there as well. 
great, 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 great. And, you know, these questions, uh, I got a little spark of inspiration as you were reading those questions because teachers could do this. Does our school have this? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Parents could do this. Does our family have this? Right? Absolutely. That, right. To, yes. you know, and does our corporation, does our organization, do we have those things? Because, again, like we're all finding our little niches in the world to try to make a difference. And, um, and that is powerful. And because we know trauma is an epidemic, in any space where you're in, any community where you're in, being trauma-informed, being aware, being um, an advocate for the people in your community, whether they be children or whether they be adult survivors of trauma, is such a powerful thing. And I think this is one of the ways that we can actually start to build really strong momentum towards changing the world and the changing the way that we address trauma and the way that we support those who experience it and can ultimately reduce the impact of trauma. And um, the trickle-down effects of that are just huge. <laughs> so, Amen. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Bring up my Baptist. Amen. So, yes, David. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I could talk to you for like another three hours. Um, <laughs> but alas, um, we must wrap it up. So I want everyone to know that you can reach out to David at dpitman at togetherweheal.org. And I'll make sure I put your um, email address in the show notes um, so that people can get the correct spelling and, and all of that. Um, certainly, you can go to togetherweheal.org. There are dashes between the words. So together-we-heal.org. Um, you can also go to netgrace.org. You can check out um, David's blog. Oh, my gosh. He's such a great writer, and he's so just, like, real and straight about it. Togetherweheal.wordpress.com. And certainly, if any of you are listening and you are in um, a faith-based community and would like Grace to come out to your church and to do some training, then reach out. That's the netgrace.org website. Um, David, am I missing anything? Anything you want to add there? That's, that's it. Awesome. Any final words for our listeners today? Just, you know, you, you actually, you just, you sparked and inspired me when, when what you said. It, it, those aren't just questions we need to ask of our churches. They're, they're questions we need to ask in every community that we, that we belong in. Mm -hmm. you know, what are we doing specifically to protect our children and to respond to those that have been harmed? So that would just be what I would stress. Yeah. Cheers to that. I love that so much. So I love you, brother. And thank you so much for being here and joining us. <laughs> love too. Oh, yay. Hi, Linda, again. And um, I love you all who are listening. And thank you so much for tuning in and joining us today. Please don't forget to visit rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and explore the other resources. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a little note so we know you're listening and enjoying what we're doing here. And then tune in next time because we have so much more to share. Until then, take good care of you. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.